Hey guys and gals, welcome back to another episode of the Constructive Liberty Podcast. Today I'm joined by Bob De Pasquale, the generosity guy, and we're talking about generous mindset for individuals and teams because that helps you define the most important things in life and find freedom in a prioritized focus. Bob, welcome to the podcast. Ken, I appreciate you having me, my friend. It's a pleasure to be on the Constructive Liberty Podcast. It'll be fun. Yeah, man. I've been looking forward to this one for quite some time. I love the the generosity concept. I've heard it from a few other people and and some of the doors that it opens, just being generous, is is quite incredible. How did you come to be known as the generosity guy? That's a great question because it kind of happened overnight, but it took 20 years. Uh, <laughs> yeah. So let me let me explain this to you. I, 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 there's a pretty long story. Maybe we'll get into that in a little bit here. But the, just to kind of sum it all up, uh, I had some events in my life happen that made me realize how important generosity is. And someone reminded me that, you know, you never have, you never know how much time um, we have left on earth. But in addition to that, you never know how many more opportunities we have to help someone out will be. Mm. And this gentleman looked at it in a really unique way. And it kind of hit me at that moment. Um, but it took it's taken me years to really work through that and see that how I personally can live out generosity. And I think generosity truly is a very simple thing, but it's also very unique to each person. I think each person has a unique uh, set of gifts and skills that they can use to, to be generous to other people and make the world a better right. place. And sometimes it can be tough in today's world to figure out how to do that. There's so many messages out there that are telling us that we need to be better. We need a self-help book. We need a podcast. We need whatever it might be. And don't get me wrong, nothing wrong with a Constructive Liberty <laughs> podcast. Um, but I think if there's 50 different books we have to read and all these different things that tell us that we're not good enough, it makes us think that we're not capable of doing really, really simple things yeah. to help people be better with the gifts and skills that we have. And so it took me a while to realize that. So I always thought generosity was important. I just don't know if I knew how to live it out until more recently. Right. And in that, and that's how I kind of became the generosity guy because I started actually taking action on it, not just thinking it, but actually doing. Right. Hmm. That's, that's interesting. I, I love how you approach that. And so often when, when I think of generosity or when, when you talk with gen, with people about generosity, we think of just giving people, like giving everything away. Like if you're generous, you're going to give everything, give mm -hmm. this, give that, give your time, give your money, whatever that might be that you have. And oftentimes it seems like when people, when we talk about generous people, they almost go overboard with it and, and mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. run themselves down, uh, wear themselves out being generous. And I was looking at your website and you talk about radical generosity what do you mean by being radically generous? If you can go into that a little bit. Uh, absolutely. Well, let me quick step back. You talk about, you know, how I be, maybe became the generosity guy and, or how yeah. people look at it and, you know, burning, burnout and self-sacrifice. I mean, selflessness is a very big part of generosity. Don't get me wrong, but that does not mean self-sacrifice. And there's, there's, right. there's a definitely, there's definitely a difference. And so I want to, I want to point that out, but you know, a lot of people have a desire to be generous. In fact, I think it's scientifically proven that there's a natural desire to be generous and support others. That's why humans out of all the animals on earth are, have one of the largest nurturing periods in our lives. I mean, think about how many 
kids stay at home 18 years, maybe longer sometimes <laughs> these days. Yeah. So we're designed to help support other people. And I think that's really, really important for us to understand that it's natural. It's a natural desire. But as I mentioned a moment ago, I think sometimes there's some distractions out there in the world that tell us that we're not capable of being a generous person. And so you don't have to be a multi-billionaire to be a philanthropist. Well, you don't good. have to be <laughs> the smartest person in the world to be a giver, right? It's it's a mindset. It truly is a mindset. And I always say this, there's a lot of talk out there and I work in the financial space. You know, we might get into that a little bit, but that's my world. I, I've lived it for 15, almost 15 years now, helping families with their finances. And I get the question all the time, you know, Bob, I don't have enough money to be generous. I tell them it's not about the amount of money you have. And all this talk out there says, when you make it big, you know, when you sell your company, when you get the executive job, when you make a bunch of money, then you can give back. Now, right. and giving back is not bad. Don't please, if you're listening out there, don't drive off the road or, you know, spill your coffee, whatever you're doing. Don't giving back is a good thing. You should give back. But I also encourage people to give forward. And there's a little bit of a difference by that. Giving back means you have such an excess and then there's people who don't, right? And it, it kind of creates this status situation, right? Or, well, I have access or money or whatever it is, and I want to give to the people who don't. So you want to do that because we, we should, I, I believe in equality and, and equal opportunity for people, so do that. But you should also be giving forward. And giving forward, I believe, is empowering people to use their own gifts and skills. It's helping them. It's collaboration. It's not me up here and you down here. It's let's go on this walk together so that we can improve the generous mindset and culture. Yeah. We can make society and the world a better place. So mm. I really want to emphasize that related to your question. I don't think that, in fact, in my in my professional life, I know some very, very wealthy well-to-do high-income people that have a terrible relationship with their money and they're not generous at all. They might mm. be giving back, they may be cutting checks, but they're not actually generous. They're doing it for the tax break or they're doing it because that's what you're supposed to do when you have a lot of right, money. Right, right. And on the flip side, <laughs> I know people the exact opposite that have a very modest living that are extremely generous. Yeah, yeah. And and let's unpack that a little bit or or go into that. I, I really mm. dislike the term giving back because you always hear like you said, the multi-billionaires, they talk about giving back. And when, when you hear that term, or at least for me anyway, I think of what are you giving back to? Is it because you've been taking for all these years and now that you've finally reached the mountaintop, you know, stepping on top of other people to get there, maybe now you're giving back and being a little bit generous. Like I, I, I don't like that term and I love how you countered that with giving forward. That's that's a beautiful, a beautiful picture because it, it really paints the picture of anybody can give. You know, mm-hmm. you're giving forward, creating. It helps you create the future that you want because as you serve others, it does. I think that's where fulfillment comes in at. I, th- I oh, talk yeah. about that all the time, using your gifts, your talents, everything that we're created with to serve other people is what brings mm-hmm. fulfillment. <laughs> Absolutely. But, um, yeah, I I think we were talking about what what you mean by radic being radically generous. Uh, yeah, talk about that a little bit. Yeah, forgive me, I didn't dive into that too much. Oh I no, you're good, you're good. Ended. I loved it. Uh, so 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 radical generosity. So I think a lot of people 
maybe misinterpret what radical actually means. I think in some cases, you know, in this world, maybe it can be misconstrued. Really what it means is it's things that are just not the natural, you know, maybe maybe logical choice in a certain situation. It doesn't necessarily mean bad. It doesn't mean illegal. It doesn't mean risky per se. It just means something that a choice that maybe someone, the average person wouldn't do. Or if you polled a hundred people, the majority of them would choose something different. Right. And so to me, radical generosity or doing things above and beyond what maybe the average person would think makes sense to support somebody else. It's being generous, but to this extra degree that maybe the average person doesn't think about. And so I talked about the gentleman who told me, who made the comment to me, or excuse me, who is known for saying, you never know when your last opportunity to be generous will be. And so this guy was known for doing some some things that the average person would be like, well, you know, you did that. Like, why would you, you know, I, I sure I'd go, let me just, this is, this is a hypothetical example. I don't know this. I'm not saying this actually happened, but you know, maybe you had an opportunity to go volunteer somewhere and most people sign up and they go volunteer for a couple hours and they do, and they help out whatever they need. Well, maybe the radical version of that would be, I'm going to go volunteer for eight hours instead of four or three hours, mm. or I'm going to recruit 10 other people to come with me. Right. Just going that above that, that above and beyond step. And, you know, you talk about entrepreneurs and maybe business people out there who are listening. I think the the leaders of organizations who are radically generous to the people that their teammate, their team and the people that, that work with them and potentially some employees are the ones that attract the, the most uh, effective employees, the highest performers, because they want to be part of something that's radically good. You know, I, I, I yeah. would, you know. Radical could go the wrong way, but it can also <laughs> and we often go think of it in the, in the, the right negative way. term. Yeah, yeah. So radical generosity is just going above and beyond. It's gotcha. it's when someone says, "Man, they're generous," but they're like really generous. Like they yeah. really care about these people. Hmm. How do you often see people showing their generosity? Like, how does that display in real life? Like, yeah, is, so- is it? Yeah, give us if you got a couple stories or something to share. Sure, there. sure. Well, I mean, I got a great story for you uh, in my own life. I'll, I'll talk about. So when I was eighteen, now I don't know about you, Ken, but when I was eighteen, I thought I was invincible, right? <laughs> I, On top of the world. Yeah. Well, I know now that I'm not, and I got plenty. And the story will explain it. But I thought I was completely invincible at eighteen. I was going off to college. We talked about a little bit earlier about how you know how long humans are in the nest, if you will. But I was yeah. ready to go. I was ready to. To, to to spread my wings if you you know if you will but I grew up in South Florida and I had an opportunity to go to college at Hofstra University in Long Island New York wow. and you know I went to college for three reasons one to play football one to spend more time with my family because I was originally I was actually born in New York and then three to get an education now I'm not going to say what order that was in my parents <laughs> my parents would probably hope that it was that the education part was was higher on the list but anyway so I go out there and I'm in training camp. Now, if anyone's ever played sports or, or football specifically, you know, training camp can be really tough, even in high school. You know, back when when I was growing up, you know, you're, you're practicing twice a day, sometimes three times a day. And the, the rules were pretty much, uh, you know, as long as they don't die, you know, you can do whatever you need to do. Yeah. And now they're much more strict. But college training camps even harder and longer. So I'm there for basically a month before school and, and games start. So 
it's early August. I show up and the first couple of practices I was doing pretty well, proving myself to my new teammates and coaches. But I came up with what we thought was a groin injury. Now, first clue that I'm not invincible. If you've ever had a, have you ever hurt your groin before? Yes. That's okay. not fun. <laughs> no, it is a brutal pulled muscle. And I've never really pulled it ever since then. But I mean, you can't stand, sit, walk, turn. I mean, it's just, it's a brutal thing. No less run down the field to play a football, you know, in a football yeah. game. So I always did a series of exercises and tests over this period of time. And I would sit on this three wheeled stool in the training room and a college training room at 5 30, 6 o'clock in the morning before practice is like a complete zoo. There's just a hundred of people. It's loud. There's things going on. People are getting treatments. And here's the freshman Bobby, they called me. And I'm, shimming myself across this massive training room, dodging people. I suppose that was part of the exercise on this three-wheeled stool to strengthen, you know, the muscles in my hips. Like, I don't know. All I know is that I wasn't working. And our head trainer, <laughs> he's like five, five, 140. I mean, not a big guy. And he would have to stand on a box in the middle of the room to get, if he wanted to get anyone's attention. And it was always so loud. Now I'm not exaggerating any of this story, except for maybe the next point. Uh, it seemed like it got dead silent at this moment. It probably wasn't, but it seemed like it was dead silent. He cups his hands and he screams like, you know, Bobby, you got to get back out on the field. It's quit being a weakling. And I was like, that was a shot to my ego, man. Like I was an 18 year old invincible kid. And here's this little head trainer guy calling me out. <laughs> and I was like, all right, let me, <clears throat> let me tell you, Rick. And I had like a more private meeting with him. And when I told my teammates that I had a private meeting with Rick, they're like, you got a private meeting with Rick? Like, no one talks to this guy in private. So they knew something wasn't right. Anyway, long story short, <clears throat> I went out. He sent me to doctors. I, I was having all these tests. I mean, I'm an 18-year-old driving around Long Island by myself. I don't know anything about doctors, health insurance, where I am. I'm technically right. an adult. But I had to go to all these appointments. And I'm telling you this whole story because it was quite a shock to my system I mean, two hours, three hours, four hours in these doctor's appointments. And my parents were supposed to come up for my first ever college game on a Thursday. And the game was on Saturday, but they're coming up on a Thursday. I'll never forget this. I went to what I thought would be the last appointment that I had scheduled. And I expected to be in there for hours, like all the other ones, filling out medical paperwork and all this other stuff. But they called me right in. I mean, I, I was in there for maybe 30 seconds. Uh, you know, they called me in. I went down, sit down in the, at the desk. The doctor comes in just a, a minute or two later and he sits me down and he, he looks at me in the eye and he says, Bobby, you have cancer. Oh, and I said, wow. what? Like, I can't, I, huh? And my, my jaw hit the desk. And the only other thing he said was, don't worry, we're going to hook you up with an oncologist and we'll figure out a treatment plan. You're good to go. And I was wow. like, I'm thinking to myself, I don't even know what an oncologist is. And the, I have what? And I, so I walked out and I kid you not, Kenneth, the incredible timing. I mean, impeccable, like divine timing. My phone rings as soon as I walk out of the building and it was my mom and she expected me to still be in the appointment. And, and she was like, Hey, you know, we just landed. I, I expected to get your voicemail, but well, now, now that I have you, how'd the appointment go? And I was like, uh, about that mom. <laughs> so I had to tell her obviously what, what happened or what the doctor told me. And, you know, can like it, it was dead silent, but my mom was screaming on the other end of the phone all at the same time. I mean, I could just feel the emotion. When mm -hmm. I told her. 
And the only thing I could hear was my dad also, he was actually yelling like, Susan, Susan, what's going on? And they, they were in this car on the way to my uncle's house who, who happened to live in New York and we were all going to meet there. And it was just the most, it just hit me like a ton of bricks. And I showed up at my parents' house, had never been away from home for that long. I gave him a, a big hug. We shed some tears. We said some prayers. We all kind of looked at each other like, what the, what, I mean, what happened? And so yeah. I tell you this whole story because a couple of days later, which was supposed to be my first game on Saturday now, obviously I wasn't playing in it, but my uncle's best friend, Tim, came over to his house. Now, we didn't know Tim because we didn't live in New York. We lived in Florida. So we never met the guy. And he was there for like a minute. And he walked over to my parents and said, Susan and Bob, I'm Tim. Nice to meet you. I can't imagine what you're going through with your son right now. So take my car. And he pulled his keys out of his pocket and he handed his keys. Like basically it seemed like he stuck them in my parents' face. And they looked at him like, what? And I thought to myself, wait a minute. So this guy's going to give us his car while he doesn't even know us. I was like, that's the most generous thing someone's ever done for our family. Mm-hmm. And so you asked about generous acts and stories to that point in my life. I mean, I've seen people do nice things, but I mean, he's like, here, take my car for as long as you could possibly need it. And that was the most generous thing someone had ever done to us at that point. And he was there for maybe 15 minutes. And he said goodbye to my aunt and uncle, and he left. And when you talk about radical generosity, I mean, he didn't have to do that. And so Tim was the guy, by the way, who I mentioned earlier, who would say, you never know when your last opportunity to be generous is. And so I also tell you that that whole story as well, because... That was a Saturday, and we knew I wasn't playing in my my first game, but I we used his car. I mean, this was a huge – this was radically awesome for us because we needed my car because I had to drive – the next week, I planned – we had to drive out to all these specialists and all these other doctors to figure out my treatment plan, and I'll never forget this. On Tuesday, so just a few days after we, we had met Tim, I went to my second-ever college class. I had already talked to an oncologist, and he had suggested that I – I don't drop all my classes, especially if I was going to stay in New York to get treated. He's like, you got to have something to do mentally. You can't just wallow in your sorrows, whatever the treatment plan is. Still stay in some classes. So I went to my second ever college class on Tuesday morning. And I came out of the class and I went to the cafeteria. And I'm sitting there in the cafeteria eating a breakfast burrito. Now, Ken, do you remember those like like an old school tube television that might it was hanging from a bracket, like in the corner of the ceiling of the mm-hmm. wall. Like, yep. <laughs> but there's I a do. TV there. And, you know, for those of you who are listening, you know, typically in my, in my studio, I have a flat screen TV that displays stuff behind me. It, it's not here today. But all I'm going to say is that it's the TV I'm talking about is way less fancy than the TV that's normally behind me. Right. And I'm watching <laughs> the news. Now, I don't know the news station. I'm in New York. I don't even watch the news. Like what teenager watches the news, especially even back then? You know, you get news on your phone or the computer, right? So the news station in New York is on, and I'm watching it, and all of a sudden a plane hits one of the twin towers in Manhattan, and oh, I'm wow. like, I'm like, oh, what a horrible accident! Like that's that's terrible. So I called my dad, who was back at my uncle's, and we're talking for like a minute. I was like, hey, did you see that? He's like, yeah, yeah, that's that's terrible. And we're talking for like I said, a minute or so. Bam! Second plane hits the other tower. During the, it's the September 11th terrorist attacks yeah, down wow. in Manhattan on the Twin Towers. And my dad was like, oh, man, 
you better you better get back to your uncle's house here. That was not an accident. So I hopped in the car. I, I didn't finish my bur- that burrito is probably still sitting there twenty something <laughs> years later, and uh, hopefully someone cleaned it up. And right. I hopped in the car. Now, Ken, it's fifteen minutes from my school to my uncle's house. Typically, a drive. It took me nine hours I to bet. drive on September eleventh, right after those attacks, mm. burning towers in the distance. I'm watching it. And I subsequently got a master's degree in broadcast journalism. I worked in radio, but I will never, ever listen to nine straight hours of AM radio ever again. But it was absolutely riveting. I can imagine. Like I, I remember where I was at that day as well. And just the the unknown of and I, I grew up in South Georgia and I was in, in school when it happened. I can't imagine having been actually in the city. What what were what were some of the things that you remember from that day as you're driving in your car, stuck in nine hours of traffic, listening to the radio? What are some of the thoughts and feelings that you remember from being, I guess, on the inside? Like I've never talked to somebody that's actually been there mm-hmm. when it happened. So it, I always tell people, they ask me this, and I'll finish the, the story here in a moment. But that period of time in my life, I would never wish the things that happened to me. I mean, with cancer and chemotherapy and all that, I would never wish that on anyone, but I wouldn't change it for myself. Yeah. I I always think about that day and that period of time, that period of five days in my life every day. This, I I mentioned earlier, the only thing I'll exaggerate was about Rick uh, and and the training room suddenly getting quiet that one morning, everything (laughs) else, hundred percent true. I think about that time in my life every single day, never forget it. Wow. Um, not a moment. Sometimes it's deeper. Sometimes it's super emotional. On September 11th, the actual day every year, it's very emotional. But some days I'll just think, wow, that happened. And that's it. It'll pass through my mind. But I always think about it. And that nine hour drive, now the phones had eventually cut out. So I couldn't call anyone. And I, all I could think of what is going on in, in my life right now in the world. And I ended up pulling into my uncle's neighborhood. Nine hours later and ran out of gas. Now, I easily could have ran out of gas on the highway, and that would have been a disaster. Right. Uh, Now, I wasn't in downtown Manhattan, so thankfully I wasn't in danger. I mean, I thought at least I wasn't in danger with with what happened at the Twin Towers, but who knows at that point, we easily could have got bombed or something. I mean, I I didn't feel completely safe, but I knew I wasn't going to get, you know, I wasn't going to be hurt by a collapsing building or anything. So we pushed my car into my uncle's neighbor driveway and we looked at each other and we we're like, just a couple of weeks ago, life was amazing. I was this invincible 18 year old living my dream. And now my life might be over, but even more than that, the world might be over. I mean, we literally, I mean, people thought it could potentially be the apocalypse. I mean, it was that serious. And you talk about the mindset of what someone was like up there. And I could see in the very distance, you know, from my uncle's house, we maybe just smoke. But when I was on the highway, I could see, you know, in the, in the distance, I could see what was going on. And it was just incredible. So I'll never forget this either, though. My my aunt was hysterically running around the house trying to figure it out because the phones were out. And she couldn't get a hold of my uncle, who was on business the night before in Denver and mm. supposed to fly to the city. Oh, wow. So we had no idea. He easily could have been involved in that. Turns out he got stuck in Denver and he finally, it's like eight o'clock at night. Maybe he called and said, Hey guys, the phones have been out. I'm so sorry. I'm, I'm sure you've been panicking, but I'm okay. 
don't worry about me. I'm fine. I'll try to catch a flight tomorrow. But I just wanted to say, you know, I love you guys and I'm safe. And we were all, we were going to hang up. She was going to hang up the phone and we'll be done. He goes, wait, before I let you go, I want to let you know that I, my best friend, Tim, from, from Saturday, uh, he was in the towers this morning, unfortunately, and he died. Oh, wow. Wow. And it I can imagine like, that. Oh, oh, it was, it was brutal, Ken. And um, we're like, wow, this is the guy that did this radically generous thing for us. And now he deserved to lose his life. And it turns out that we were actually his last opportunity to be radically generous. And <laughs> we found out more in the subsequent days that he was a pretty well-known guy, successful guy at Cantor Fitzgerald, an investment bank that their entire offices were in, uh, were in the, the, the South, the North tower there. And if you look it up, look up Cantor Fitzgerald. Anyone out there wants to look at the video of their, uh, their leader at the time was the only guy or girl, only human, not in the office that morning out of hundreds of employees of Canner. And he feels terrible about it. He has some survivor's guilt, but he was uncharacteristically not in the office that morning because he was something happened. He had to take his kid to preschool and he was on the street when it happened. And he was one of those people that you see like running away from the collapsing building. And he tells these stories and it's amazing. Well, I tell you this now because Kenneth Fitzgerald was known for being really generous people. Uh, just a, a really successful, like money-making organization, but very generous. And Tim, my uncle's best friend, just fit into that culture so much so that they they would give office space for free to my uncle's foundation for cystic fibrosis, a disease that my cousin has. And so the the whole radical generosity culture came from Canada Fitzgerald, really. And Tim lived it, and so we really had to. Um, really consider what happened and why. I mean, it was just such a terrible thing that, that Tim ended up passing all the people, people from the foundation. They were not in the office that morning. Typically not. They didn't come in that early. The only lady that who would typically be there, her name was Tammy. And she was kind of the number one at the time of the foundation kind of running things. But she was also uncharacteristically late for something silly. Like she forgot something or had to stop somewhere and was stuck in the subway when the tower got hit and so she she's alive now. Thank God she's safe, but her stories are amazing. So yeah. the point is, Ken, we, we never know. Tim was in the tower. Tammy was in the subway and she escaped and you just never know. And we all have these opportunities in our life to do stuff. And if we don't take advantage of them, that it could be, that could be the last one, which would be, which would be terrible. Yeah. Wow. Wow. That is, that's, that's an incredible story. Like, just some of the things that you hear coming out of that time in our history, mm-hmm. like it, it boggles the mind. And and there's a lot of, there was a lot of generosity that went on around that event specifically. And that kind of leads me to my next question. Why is it that we as people want to be generous and, and what makes that generosity so contagious? Because when we're around those kind of people, we tend to want to emulate that. What goes on there? There's anecdotal evidence that I have just in my my last 20 plus years really diving into generosity. I mean, you talk about two decades of me studying, whether formally or informally, and evaluating people and just trying to understand it more. There's also scientific evidence. So I'll start with the scientific just so I can prove it first. So a, a friend of mine, Wendy Steele, she's got a TED Talk. It's probably almost 15 years old now, but it still holds up. She talks about oxytocin the bonding hormone. And you might hear about dopamine and different different hormones and you can read all about it. But oxytocin specifically is 
women who've given birth to children might know I've done research about this. It's, it's released in that, in that process. And so that's why, you know, they say a mother and child's bond is about as strong as it can get. Well, oxytocin is also released in generosity situations and other, and other times in life. It's not just in childbirth. And so Wendy's Ted talk is all about the three parties of a generous act. Now, most people have received a gift before holiday season, right? You know what it feels like. Maybe it's a birthday. It feels good. You got a gift. It's not just the gift too. It's also that you feel loved by the person, right? I know that if my wife gives me something, I got my birthday coming up here in a few days. And if she's giving me a gift, even if I don't even like the gift, I'm still going to appreciate the act because it, right. we have a bond. You know, we have a marriage. Uh, so most people have experienced that. Most people have also experienced what it's like to be a giver. I'm sure, Ken, you've given a gift to a family member or a friend before, right? It feels good. It makes you feel yeah. like, you know, they know that you care, right? Right. Well, Wendy, as brilliant as she is in the research that she did, she points out the third party. And we've a lot of people have also experienced this, but I don't think we realize it as much. The third party onlooker of a generous act. So if you see it happen in public, or if you watch a, you know, to these days, you can watch generous acts all the time on Instagram reels and YouTube shorts. Could be a quick 10 second video of someone yeah. being nice to someone. But that person, the third party also receives a hit, if you will, of oxytocin. So you asked about how it's contagious and why. Well, it's scientifically proven that that third party feels good even when they just see it. They kind of, they, they catch the virus, if you will. And right. so- it's so powerful and it's scientific. The, the human body wants to experience generous acts. So that's the scientific evidence, at least. Hmm. Well, did I lose you? Oh, there you go. You froze oh, for just a second. Your, your audio kept going, but you froze for just a second. Oh, uh, you got me now? Sorry. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I, I, you're still good. I, the audio was was fine the whole way through that, but it, your video froze for just a second. Okay. It's interesting how, how that works. The how it catches on and the third party can, can kind of take that feeling and, and then pass it on. Yeah. And they're much more likely to go yeah, do right? something nice themselves. Like, Oh, that feels really good. You know, I got another quick story. So sure. uh, my, my mother-in-law is visiting us right now. She lives in Michigan. We still live in Florida and uh, we're actually all, then we're all at my mom's house now. So it's kind of crazy in the family right now. And we, we, but we love spending time together, right? Well, I always think about this when, when we get together for holiday during the holiday season, the different times of the year, you know, when, when there's a holiday and we talk about gift giving, we were driving in Michigan once. I think we were going over, I don't know if anyone's familiar, but we were going over the Mackinac Bridge and we had to pay a toll and we were about a mile up to the, the toll plaza. And my mother-in-law said to my, my wife, I'm sitting in the back seat. I love to sit in the back seat and just work and get stuff done. I don't like to drive. So I'm in the back <laughs> seat, like not even really paying attention. But I did hear, I don't know if I didn't have my headphones on, something happened. And I heard my mother-in-law say, I would like to pay the toll for someone in addition to just us today. I just, I'm feeling generous. And I smiled. I was like, oh, that's really cool. Like I've heard people do this before. And I, you know, you don't really think anything of it at times. You know, you just kind of do it. And some people, have you ever heard someone pay for someone at the drive-through or at the grocery oh, yeah. store? Yeah. Um, you know, I mean, you might just walk away. You're not looking for recognition. You just do it and you move on, which is fine. Awesome. Like I encourage people to do this all the time. But this what this time was a little bit different. It hit me because she drove up to the to the toll booth 
And when she told this person that she was going to the, the, the toll attendant that she was going to pay for the next person, um, the lady said, the, oh, what did she say? I, I'm, I'm butchering the story, but essentially what she said to the lady, the way she described what she wanted to do, the lady broke down and was like, wow, that's just what I needed to hear. And she explained about how she had lost some faith in people's you know, ability to be generous. And she thought that um, maybe she had a bad experience with some other people previously in the day that were trying to pay the toll. Um, so the moral of the story, once again, is my mother-in-law was the giver. The person behind her, we don't even know who it was. We'll never meet them. It, right. didn't even, it almost doesn't even matter who the receiver was. And I'm sure that they benefited, but maybe that person really didn't need the money. What really needed to happen in that moment was the the third party person, the toll attendant was the one who needed to see the message. So you yeah. never know. Right. So like that. So my, um, my, my wife has water bottles and there's, there's a, there's a short story behind this too, but I'll, I'll keep it brief. Essentially there's water bottles in my mom, always in my wife's car. And we live in South Florida. It's very hot, especially in the summer. And she'll pass out water bottles to people who need them when she stop at stoplights, whether they're a homeless person or just someone walking, whatever. Uh, and she's always passing out these water bottles. And the point is, you never know when you might find someone in need. But I realized that based on that other story with the toll booth, there's probably people that have seen my wife pass out water bottles that have also benefited from that and seen that. And maybe they've gotten yeah. the idea to do that. Now they're spreading it. Or maybe that made them realize Hey, you know, I should probably be generous myself in some other way. So the point is third parties, really powerful. And that's where it's contagious. And I'm glad you asked that question. And so yeah, that's my awesome. anecdotal evidence. So <laughs> yeah, yeah, the scientific and the anecdotal. Yeah, that's fantastic. Uh, kind of as we wrap up here, I, I'd, I'd love to ask, you know, you, you mentioned all the reels and, and little short videos and stuff of people displaying generosity and often the ones you see are somebody like Mr. Beast giving somebody a while, a big, huge wad of cash or something like that to the people that, you know, they want to be generous, but they see that as the thing that people put out as being generous, but they're like, I don't have the big wad of cash to go around handing people. Where mm -hmm. should they start with their generosity? And well, and I mentioned actively I have a, doing that. Yeah. So I mentioned before about studying journalism and working in radio one of the, the most powerful things that I ever was taught or learned or practiced was asking questions. And there's another thing when I was writing my book, I expected that I was going to just dump a bunch of knowledge on a piece of paper because I'm, you know, so intelligent and which clearly I'm not. I should have, my wife has reminded me this many times. So I don't know what I was thinking, but I, I guess I just assumed some experience would help. But the best advice I ever got was it's not about what you know, it's about what you want to know and your curiosity. Mm. And so that ties right in with asking questions. So if you take the advice I got when I was writing my book, plus my journal, journalism studies, I realized that asking questions is the number one most important thing to get stuff done in the world. Whether you're, whether you're an entrepreneur, solopreneur, or you work for a massive company, or you're just someone trying to be generous, it's all about asking questions. Because what happens is that you get to understand people, you build relationships, you know them, you know what they actually need. I think it's really easy these days. It's almost too easy. We talk about this as well. It's too easy to give money. You, you can, any cause that's worth their weight, right? That's doing something that, that, that's putting the effort in. You can go on their website and you can donate within 30 seconds. One, It's like, I don't know about you. Have you ever been stricken with the one click buy of Amazon? 
Like you can go on Amazon, <laughs> you can go on Amazon, and then you can spend a thousand dollars. Way too easy. Ten seconds, right? Um, yep. And it also applies to charity. You can go on a website of of your organization of choice, and you could donate fifty bucks in in thirty seconds or less, which is okay. Yeah. Uh, but that's I think that's made us a little lazy, if you will. And so we need to ask more questions. So if you don't feel or you're not in a financial situation to give a lot of money or even a little bit of money. Well, first of all, this, let me, let me make a point. I would press you or stretch you that you can give more money than you think you can. That's number one. We always I think can. Letting go of that grip uh, of what money is. If you believe money's more than a tool, I, you know, I would challenge that. You know, I'm a pretty, I'm pretty strongly opinionated on this. I mean, I'm a nice guy. I want to be generous, but I'll fight, <laughs> I'll fight most people verbally uh, <laughs> on, on the fact that money is simply a tool. It's an extremely powerful tool, but it's just a tool. It's not the means to an end. Excuse yeah. me, it's the, it can be the means sometimes, but it's not the end. So to answer your question, the, the number one thing is to ask questions. If you're looking for a way to support people more than just financially, it's to ask questions to people in your network, ask questions directly to people that you feel like could potentially be in need. Um, you know, if you're part of a faith community, that's a great place. A lot of those, a lot of organizations will have connections there. Um, you can ask people at work, say, you know, instead of, instead of at the water cooler talk, and believe me, I love talking about sports instead of saying, Hey, do you see the game last night? Maybe say something like, Hey, you know, do you know anyone, know anyone that might be, you know, in need? Is there anyone that's like sick or anyone who needs some help or, Hey, how's your project going at work? This is the number one thing I talk about when I speak with organizations, uh, the organizations that have a generous culture where it's collaborative, like, because you want to win because you're part of something bigger than yourself. Not where right. I got to, in order for me to win and be acknowledged and celebrated in my career, I got to take down the person in the cubicle next to me, right? So maybe ask them, hey, how's that project going? Can I be of assistance? And I think you'd be surprised of how generous you can be by helping someone with a project at work. So just ask questions. That's the really, really the number one thing. And then, because what happens is two things happen. One is you find out what people actually need. So my example of this is we found out there was a, a really, really good friend of ours had uh, major, major health issues the past six months or so. And when it first started, they were so sick that family couldn't, visiting them in and out of the hospital, didn't have meals. So one day we're like, you know what, we're going to bring a meal over there. And someone had asked us, like, what can we do to help them? And I said, well, we didn't know, but we brought them a meal. And then the word got out, and then not us, I wish I could take credit for it, someone else started a, a document that you could sign up to bring them meals. All because this person huh. asked one question, how can we help them? <laughs> and so yeah. they had meals for three, literally three months. Every day, that's someone incredible. would go over and bring them a meal. So ask the questions. And then, so that's the number one thing. You find out what people need. Makes it real simple. And the second thing is, is you build a network. I mean, how powerful is that? Like we talk, we talk about, you know, in business and how important it is to have a network of people and be a connector. Could you yeah. imagine being like the generosity networking guru in your town or your community where people come to you to say, Hey, who needs this? Like I have this available. Let me ask Bob or Ken or whoever you are out yeah. there. Like that's such a powerful thing. You can do so much more by being a connector because it's exponential, right? That, that, right. that value is uh, tremendous because now you can spread the knowledge. I mean, cause you can't handle it all yourself, you know? You need help for sure. Yeah, we all need oh. help. Wow, that that's that's incredible stories, and it's a fantastic reminder to 
show generosity because we come across those opportunities every single day. And if you, if you're looking for it, you can see them, but so often we just pass by it and completely mm-hmm. miss the opportunity. So I, I really appreciate you stressing to look for the opportunities and to show generosity in all the different ways, more than just monetarily. Mm-hmm. Now I, I know you have a podcast and you've written books and you do quite a bit of speaking. Where can people follow you and find out more about you? Best place, bobdebasquale.com. You can find my social links, everything there. And my company is initiateimpact.com. So those two websites will get you just about everything that you need to know, uh, whether it's the book or my social links. And I love to to talk with people. So if you want to hit me in the DMs and you got a question, or if you have a generosity story, I'm all about sharing the stories and, and being that contagion. I'd love to spread the I'd love to make generosity the next pandemic. So by all means, hit me in the DMs. Awesome. Awesome. Bob, thanks so much for joining me today. Awesome, Ken. Appreciate it, brother.